Hello, everybody. My name is Jason West, and this is Pod Class. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cal State Long Beach College of Education and Educational Leadership Department. Did you know that the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach is home to not one, not two, but three advanced degree programs? One such program is the Educational Leadership Doctorate Program, a three-year program designed for working professionals in PK-12 and higher education who want to further promote social justice in urban educational settings. What's particularly unique about the program is that higher ed and PK-12 students take many of their courses together, cue the We Are Family theme song, and they do this so they can learn together how to address problems across the educational spectrum. The program prides itself on providing high levels of support and practical knowledge so that students graduate on time and make a difference in their jobs. Interested in applying? Check out csulb.edu forward slash edld for dates and information. That's csulb.edu forward slash edld. Go beach, go teach, go lead. Today's tea is provided by Snapdragon and Thistle. Do you know where your teas come from? Don't worry, Snapdragon and Thistle does. Snapdragon and Thistle prides themselves on sourcing their teas ethically. They've eliminated those pesky middlemen. Damn you, middlemen. After the leaves are picked, your leaves only make two stops before landing at your front door. Y'all, two stops? I'm turning 40 later this year, and I have found that the older I get, the more stops and the more steps it takes me to do just about anything. Snapdragon and Thistle provides the best prices for premium, ethically grown teas so that both your taste buds and your conscience can enjoy your cup of tea. Snapdragon and Thistle is also offering podcast listeners 10% off their next order. All you have to do is go over to snapdragonandthistle.com, that's S-N-A-P-D-R-A-G-O-N-A-N-T-H-I-S-T-L-E.com, that's right, I spelled that whole thing for you, and enter the promo code Mr. West T10. That's M R W E S T T E A 10. Now, I realize I just threw a whole bunch of letters and numbers your way, but while you're processing everything I just gave you, let's just take a moment to bask in the fact that I have my very own promo code, y'all. My very own promo code for T. While we let that just sort of wash over and warm our hearts and souls, let's start the show. sitting here over Zoom with Dr. Jonathan O'Brien. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. So quick rundown of your CV. Dr. O'Brien at one point was the Dean of Students at Occidental College. Shout out to Barack Obama. Uh, Currently, he is an Associate Professor at CSULB, where in the Educational Doctorate Program, he teaches courses in Research Epistemologies and Methodologies, easy for me to say, <laughs> law and ethics, professional seminars, and qualitative research methods. That is quite a workload. <laughs> Dr. O'Brien, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. 
Uh, I'm glad to be here. I, as I said, I've heard really good things about your show. I've listened to a couple of them that my colleagues have uh, participated in. And uh, actually, you may remember that I, I, I met you once very early on when with Char Dr. Slater, Charles Slater, you were doing us. Oh, and it was Jim Scott, Dr. Jim yeah. Scott. Yeah. You were doing I, a uh, at the symposium. Yeah. Right. And yes, I, 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 I can tell you related to our topic, which I know we'll get to, I can tell you a lot about what I thought about then and what I know now. <laughs> oh, perfect. This is going to be great. So, all right, well, get comfortable before we get into the interview. Uh, hope you have your cup of tea. You got it? I do. All right, excellent. Because before we get into so much to talk about, we're going to start with a quick segment I'm calling Intersectionality. All right, let's take a sip. Today we are drinking Jasmine Pearls. Jasmine tea started its journey to become like one of the most famous scented teas in the world during the China, during China's Ming Dynasty, which is some 750 years ago. Like the bergamot-infused Earl Grey, jasmine tea falls into this kind of funny category of flavored or scented tea. It includes basically any type of tea that's been flavored or scented with flowers, fruit, spices, oils, extracts, natural, artificial flavors, anything that's been added, basically. And while Jasmine's fragrant scent is most famously infused into green tea, some tea gardens actually just produce jasmine tea with a base of white or black tea. It's not necessarily just green tea. Now, jasmine pearls are interesting because they're these large jasmine tea leaves that are uh, green tea leaves that are hand rolled into these little pearl shaped bunches and they unfurl when steeping and they slowly release their delicate, sweet, and floral flavors. And because of this, jasmine pearls can be steeped multiple times. I typically steep them a total of like three times, and you get a new and more delicate flavor with each brew. So now that you have the nice long history of jasmine tea, take a sip and enjoy. So you're probably wondering, why are we drinking this classic green tea today, right? Like how do jasmine pearls intersect with education and personal identity. So, as I mentioned earlier, jasmine pearls are hand-rolled and steeped, no pun intended, in both effort and tradition. Where's kind, of like, kind of like education. But like leaves in hot water, education has gone, has undergone a significant transformation these last 12 months. So I'm gonna start us off by asking, and forgive the pun, what pearls of wisdom has the pandemic given us as educators? Oh, goodness. This is, this is really good. I like metaphor and, uh, and oh, this good. Is, Cause I exclusively speak in metaphor. This is really analogies. So yeah, no great. metaphors are great. Wow. I, you know, well, I did a little of my own Google, uh, research since I got the wind of this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely also appreciate the complexity with which, you know, it's created, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, of hand, literally hands-on work. I mean, they're rolled by hand. Um, but I also like what you bring up about the unfurling in the heat in the hot water. Yes. And I think from, I guess, from an educator's perspective, I have to say that I am not, the, I am the person that would have carefully, my pedagogically rolled my students' minds, you know, together with, with the kinds of things that they needed to know in life and all of that. And I guess I would have expected that they would have unfurled on their own time. But then, you know, we really found ourselves in a, 
in a crisis not of our own making. Certainly, it was a natural crisis. And then there was human crisis involved in it as well in terms of economic problems and racial unrest and and racial reckoning after that. So for me, I think the hot water as an educator was I was someone who did not want to change my ways. Um, I was staunchly and proudly opposed to any kind of of, uh, virtual instruction. and the irony is that right before this happened, literally, literally, like I know we're not supposed to use that word, but literally within months, of, literally. <laughs> within months of the shutdown a year ago now, um, our department chair was was trying to cajole us into just one class. Let's think about hybridity. And I can remember sitting there with my arms crossed and just thinking, nope, I was like the little kid that wasn't going to do it. And I guess the metaphor of the tea is that, you know, we all got dropped into hot water. And in this case, it was like turning on a dime. And really, in a lot of ways, my pedagogical growth, you know, unfurled in that. I mean, I really got excited about what we call alternative modes of instruction, right, which is to distinguish it between true online instruction that that our faculty colleagues that do this exclusively prior to the pandemic and will continue to do it after really have gotten it into a fine pedagogical science and art form. But for those of us that had to, to fall into the, into the new world uh, order, as it were, um, this was really a challenge. And I think we rose to it pretty well at my institution with my colleagues. And so, yeah, that's my initial response to that, that idea is that in, in the hot water, we really, I think we kind of unfurled and became something really, really good. Okay. So then in, in that spirit, and since you enjoy metaphors, I'm going to just, I'm going to really hammer this team metaphor one more time. (laughs) Beat it. School districts across the country are starting to reopen, right? Like Long Beach is going to be fully reopened at the end of April. And so I'm going to look at this reopening kind of like a second steep of the T, right? So in that same spirit, how do you think classes will be different this time around? Yeah, this is, um, I, and I see this also at the obviously at the post secondary level. And I and and I'll clarify, the students that I teach are, are all adults, so they're you know they're master students, graduate students who've already right. had an undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. However, you know I'm, I'm aware that classrooms are going to be different. We're having that conversation at the university level, and I know they're having it in school districts, and it's. Um, you know, it's obviously, it's important that it be a local issue, clearly. And it's important that, um, that we continue to keep the importance of equity, access. And at our institution, principles of safety is primary. Um, then pedagogy, the quality of pedagogy is important. You know, to what does it serve necessarily if students have to be six feet apart, if it's a counseling course, or if it's a dance course, or, or, you know, physical education, or something like that, where you're playing contact sports, like, you know, whatever. So safety pedagogy, and then the practical access parts of it, you know, can students actually change their lives? Some people, especially in post-secondary, have moved away from the area, or uh, now they're caring for an ill relative or child, you know, so it's not, it's not quite the same thing. So it's not going to be the same. And I think I realized this early on, it's not going to be the same for probably two to three years. I don't have a crystal ball, but 
there will be people who can't return for whatever reason or people who don't want to return to the traditional classroom environment. Mm. So let's, let's think we're in a vacuum and it's largely, everything's sort of returned to normal. How does the classroom look? Does it, does it just like snap back like a rubber band and we're back to where (laughs) we were or are we forever changed by this? Yeah. I think, I think that we are, for as long as our memories are forever changed. But you know what? I, I know that folks' memories are short and not out of disrespect, but think about it. I mean, so a friend of mine and I have been having discussions about this and it's like, did 9-11 change things? Yes, it did, right? Because it certainly changed uh, our access to federal buildings. Yeah, it certainly um, it changed, it changed institutions, right? And that's kind of what I'm wondering. Do you think that yeah, I think the institution of it. Absolutely. I definitely think that there will be changes as a result of that. And then as we go through time, people will kind of wonder, why are we doing that? And it'll be like, well, let me tell you, you know, 25, 30 <laughs> years ago, this happened. And I'm that's you know, absolutely like, why do we remove our shoes when we get on a plane? Right. You know, and, and we, those of us who are around know that. Well, well, that happened. Yep. So the, um, the thing with education, I think we'll always, I think we'll be more conscious of, um, you know, when flu season comes around, I think people might be a little more conscious of, of hygiene. Um, I think you know, work when, when they're sick. Absolutely. I also think hybridity. Um, I, you know, here's like with my students before the pandemic, we talked about access and equity being that some people benefited from being able to Skype. We called it Skype in at the time. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so that they didn't have to drive and park and, you know, because they had children and it was hard to deal with work and all that. And now all of a sudden, because Zoom is the normal situation, now people are starting to say, well, it's better for me to be at home because I can take care of this or I can yeah. work with this. So stuff stuff morphs and changes. I'm also totally amazed, but not surprised that institutions like higher education that are designed to be deliberative and very slow turned on a dime. One year ago, all of higher education or education in general just turned on a dime. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things, I think people aren't going to put up with the old ways, you know, oh, you have to come in here and sign a wet signature for this, or, oh, you have to do No, you don't. (laughs) There's email, there's Zoom, there's all kinds of things now. Occupy. I think that we'll rely a lot more on technology. Hmm. You mentioned inequities um, that were highlighted by the pandemic. Where should we start addressing the inequities that were high- that were highlighted by the pandemic? Does it start at the government level? Does it start at a district or university level? Does it start at just a simple like the teacher in the classroom level? Where do you, where do you think that should start? Oh my gosh, yeah, and I think at all levels, and I think because this was so systemic and pervasive, I th- in many ways, if there could be good good that comes out of it, part of I guess what I was saying about the idea that systems changed on a dime is that we've been able to now see a lot of inequity laid bare about, I know my own students having to drive to campus to sit in the parking lot to use Wi-Fi or, you know, people um, not wanting to turn on their camera because either they didn't want their home revealed or they just, or it was the one thing that they could control in a crazy world was to just. Or just the fatigue of staring at yourself all day. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, I've adjusted my hair. <laughs> In a single day. I, I have to turn off the self view because otherwise I just am kind of like narcissus and I just, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm no, I, I think we all are. We just are sort of drawn <laughs> to like, God, does my hair, is my hair always like that? And now you're like, Oh, we talk about uh, how do we return back when we Absolutely. come back? It's like, are we going to be 
painfully aware or unaware of just how weird we look. But I, well, that's something that I think that, you know, that that's something hopefully people can pursue with their therapist or, or do, or, you know, journal <laughs> it out. But I do think what you were talking about was really important. I want to get back to that is it takes all levels, right? So I think, I think that teachers need to be the, are always going to have to be the leaders to step in and remind administrators, um, and having been one in my past prior to becoming a teacher, I'm kind of glad I went the other way because I understand an administrative mindset, which is to preserve the status quo, to meet metrics, and to, to um, meet compliance obligations. Um, but it sort of blinds you to the day-to-day on-the-ground operations that kids aren't getting food, kids aren't getting an opportunity to go to a safe place. Sometimes school was actually a safe place for yeah. kids. Um, and they aren't getting an opportunity to socialize or mingle. Um, so many things. And it's the teachers that need to be able to advocate for that. I, I see myself as someone, again, who teaches adults advocating oftentimes for students who needed early on, who needed laptops, who needed I didn't realize actually, because I thought at graduate level, certainly folks, you know, had the money and the time and all that to be able to do this, but no, they, they needed uh, to, they, many students used our food pantry. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff laid bare in. That's including the post-grad students. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, pre pandemic pre-distance learning it's almost embarrassing that i had the naivete to think that the uh digital divide was solvable by you know well we're one-to-one devices so the digital divide is not quite the same yes maybe they don't have the same kind of comfort level with the devices but over time you know we start this at an early age in the schools and then by the time they get to middle school and high school they're very proficient and then this whole thing started and it's like, Oh no, it's, you can give every student a brand new MacBook, and that's just a thousand dollar paperweight if they don't have high speed, high quality internet. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, that alone, you just, you realize how it has been used. And, you know, if, if you're a parent and you can't afford uh, certain things and you sort of triage the situation and you go, okay, well, I don't need internet because we can always go to the library. The kids can, you know, they do their work at school. Uh, we have cell phone service, but that's, you know, we don't need to go. We don't need internet because we can get it from various sources. And then when this happened and all of those sources were completely severed, uh, it became very apparent that, you know, how should we be looking at what internet is? Do we look at it the way we should be looking at water? Uh, Absolutely. And, and power. Yeah. So you, you talked about how it really laid everything out to bear and you've been doing this for a while now and you've seen your fair share of equity driven work, both develop into something big. And then in some cases, you know, die on the vine. Do you think that this pandemic is going to serve as a major turning point for progress in education, or do you think it's going to be more of like a, a like a blip in the timeline of educational inequities? Well, and I, I think we also have to take into account that in, additional, in addition to the pandemic, 
was also the George Floyd murder and 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 then so unrest, also yeah. violence, and then the unrest that were happen was happening really at the same time and in through spring and then into summer, um, and and then you also had an economic shutdown, which that's the you know the human caused yeah. crisis in this, um, and you know it just it becoming people losing their jobs in 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 the industries and you know women predominantly people of color black and brown people specifically being particularly hurt um yeah it just magnified things now i would like to believe that this like trifecta perfect storm then would end up hopefully giving us something to remember and think about as we move forward i know like personally for me it will for me it will um highlight and make me focus so much more on the idea that, um, you know, my students are human beings and I've, I've always thought that, but I've always thought, well, this is my class. And, you know, I have been kind of self-focused on the idea that, well, my class was the best one and the greatest, you know, topic in the world and all that. <laughs> I mean, I, under, I understood to some degree because I had graduate students that they had lives, but I still had these expectations that I realized were unrealistic on my part, you know, and when we would, we would hide behind the notion of rigor and excellence when I think what the pandemic showed us is that people are human and people uh, need to be able to do things kind of at their own pace. I always had flexible deadlines when people would tell me there were issues going on, but now you had to realize that people have stuff going on that you could, you know, you could never know and, or they're not going to share with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so give people, you know, the, the grace that, um, things are going on in their lives. So that's, that's one thing I think that I hope that we continue to take with us. Um, I think the other thing is, um, the usefulness of technology and, and the way, uh, here's what, you know, kind of some of the things that I learned that I never wanted to take the time to do, but I used to think that the old idea of flipping the classroom, the idea of, you know, having students, do a lot of reading or other activities on the outside so we could focus on application and synthesis on the inside of the classroom. For me, I used to say, well, the flipped classroom is a flop for me because I, I could never get students to do what, what, you know, they were supposed to do. I used to think it's called homework. Just do it, you know? Yeah. Well, now I realize like I prepare uh, some discussion boards, which I didn't do before. And I do some videos, I call them explainer videos. And they're like no more than about 10 to 15 minutes long. And they just kind of supplement my lectures. I'm going to continue doing that because that frees up a lot of time in class. The students really like it. Um, And so I think, you know, those are just a couple of things. I I like the idea of using clickers and jam boards and things like that. Um, I've started to become a lot more engaging with technology and, and that would have never happened. And I know my colleagues and I were Luddite, man. We were like, no way you're going to, we're going to retire in 10, 15, 20 years. And you're not going to make us do it. <laughs> and all of us very quickly, I think adapted to it pretty well. Um, I talked to my students and I asked them, is this something that you want to continue? I, I, I asked them just this last week. I'm like, would you see yourself uh, returning in fall? Is this something that you'd be willing to do if we could do it? And surprisingly again these are graduate students and and doctoral students they are like you know i kind of wanted to but i i think it's okay that i don't have to like drive 25 miles to class at four o'clock at night and fight traffic and park in a parking lot (laughs) hundred percent we talk about it all the time it's like on the one hand it'll be nice for a sense of community and uh you know the the types of assignments are going to change it's 
at the same time, yeah, just the idea that I, I can just like have dinner in my house, not fight traffic, not find parking, not, you know, come home late, not worry about missing bedtime or, you know, anything like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we're like, Ooh, we kind of do have to go back, but oh, we've gotten really accustomed to, I, you know, and then, and you're familiar with the K-12 side and I would ask you, I guess, like, I know this is your show, but I would say like, what about, um, like, I do think though, kids got to go back to school. I mean, personally, I don't have children, but I would think they desperately need to socialize, especially the kindergarten to, you know, sixth grade for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard because on the one hand we have a disproportionate amount of families who are already in a vulnerable population who are not yet vaccinated. And the idea of saying, okay, well, go to school, come back. Hopefully you don't bring anything home uh, is, is tough. Uh, we also have rules in place for this, this return that, you know, it's not really going to be like how school has been. You know, kids are still sitting six feet apart. There's not really a whole lot of group work in the way that it was before. And they're still on their devices, wearing masks, still socially, you know, or spatially distanced. Uh, and so it kind of becomes this weird, you know, you you all enter this way of this building, you end, you exit. You know, it's, it, the whole the whole system is is unique, and so I think we are putting a lot of stock in having this sense of returning to normalcy, but we're not doing the legwork of prepping students anyway for you know the real the reality of it's not going to be the way it was in January of last year, it's going to be like how it's going to be in April, you know, the first month of reopening schools in a weird way where only some of the kids are coming to schools and some of the kids are choosing to stay home. Um, I think we just have to prepare our kids for that. You know, this makes me think of like, there are two things. One is the part that like parents and stakeholders like faculty and all that demand of administrators, which is, you know, we want transparency. We want to know what the thought process is. So there's this tension. And then I always, having been, as I said, an administrator for a while and like it's, and, and, and working with people who are students who are, is knowing that there are limits to transparency and it's not necessarily some nefarious scheme to keep people in the dark it's chaos leadership. This is a virus. Only the virus knows what it's going to do. And then there are decisions that are made around that, that can compound it and make it, as I say, into a human crisis in addition to the natural crisis that it is. But it's when people are pressing for more information, I think they're creating a level of frustration um, that can't be predicted. And so people are, you know, the people in positions are trying to do the best they can but I don't want to apologize for leaders. So the other part of it is I think leaders would best be served by tapping into really calling on people to be able to participate in conversations and bring them into their thought process and then allow them to grieve. So that's the second thing is grieving the fact that um, what was known 
because this happened so fast, you know, it just like turned that, um, people need to grieve because there was really literally a a death of the past, which we took for granted. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you know, if you don't have this really full life examined, then when it's taken from you very quickly, it feels so tragic, right? Unless you have a chance to have reflected on what you are losing. And so I think one of the best things rather than try to like give people fully formed plans, like this is how we're going to come back. And this is because it's not, doesn't work that way. It's where a lot of it works on case levels and, and things like that, that, that it, that hopefully leaders would bring people in and, and teachers would also be involved in this process of bringing families in to talk about grieving what we law, what we don't have anymore, but then looking forward to making a new way of being as we know things. I mean, I think that also, I think what also plays into it is, you know, the tug of war of people who want to go one way and people who want to go another way. And we still, you know, 2020 uh, and even the years that led up to 2020 is, I mean, it's really the era of misinformation. Mm -hmm. And there are people who still don't understand how this virus works. I, I cannot tell you, I've been on walks and I've seen people standing on their front porches with Lysol wipes, wiping their groceries down. And I'm like, <laughs> that that ain't it. Like, you're fine. You can just bring your groceries in. That's not how it transmits. And, but, you know, it's not like one or two people. I see it all the time. Um, yeah. And I think that's the same thing when you talk about reopening schools and we're obviously necessarily so very sensitive about children's health and teachers' health and the elderly's help, uh, health, and the vul- vulnerable citizen's health. And all of that is put in this one neat package of when you talk about opening schools, and it just becomes a real hot button issue that it's, it's almost hard to have everyone slow down to the point where you say, hey, why don't we just talk about like what you were saying, the grieving process, so that we can all start to move forward. It, you know, it just becomes a cacophony of <laughs> screaming because if you, idea. If you- don't get to process grief, it can often yeah. turn into anger. Sure. You know, Which it is. Uh, yeah. And that's what's happening now is that people, you know, and let's face it, I, the, the information is inconsistent. I mean, they weren't letting people there. They were telling people don't wear masks, don't wear masks. And I can remember thinking, well, you know, in many Asian countries, people wear masks. They, they've been doing that for, for a yeah. long time. I think they know something about masks that we don't know, you know, and, and then lo and behold now, Oh, masks. And then recently double up your mask, like, you know, and so this inconsistency I know makes people, feel like who's in charge. And then that just adds to what, you know, what you're saying in terms of no one can really trust the information. But I also think that that's where teachers need to bring people in again and like bring them into the thinking process. This is how information and decisions are made. But the other thing is, and it's not a really clear answer, but it's, you know, I study morality and ethics and stuff and particularly in in leadership. And for me, I also feel like you know, the decisions that were made in terms of who got the vaccine when the vaccines became available were wrong. And I'm going to, I'm going to out myself and say, you know, I'm looking forward to my second shot. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder the wisdom behind why professors got shots, otherwise healthy professors who were under 65 kind of situation, which would be me, um, would get the shot 
before folks who are out in the community delivering food or working in supermarkets or things like that, where they are taking it every day and tend to be folks who are black, brown, you know, in community, underserved communities, women, primarily in service jobs and things like that. Um, and decisions, you know, are never made with that kind of ethical thinking behind it. And that's why I really like to focus on it as much as possible. And what I teach is we need to start thinking about who benefits most, because ultimately we all benefit when the people that are helping our, our society go are safe, you know, cause then they're, then they're not spreading and they're healthy and, and that sort of thing. The ethics and how I square it, by the way, because people are saying, well, okay, but he took a shot and he had no problem with that. I, what I would say is that I've heard from, and I agree with this, you know, the ethics of it is, is that it, I didn't make the rules for this, for the city of Long Beach. And so when, you know, an opportunity arises, it certainly then is something that one takes because ultimately everyone being ultimately vaccinated yeah. is, is good for society. Um, but, you know, a lot of this for me has just profound ethical implications. All of it does. So that's really interesting. And I want to take what you just said and bring it back to something you said earlier about, you know, how we have grace for the students and what they're going through uh, at all levels, whether it's uh, PK to 12 or higher ed or, you know, graduate level. And, you know, what's really interesting is we're always talking about teachers and recognizing the work that they're putting in and all of that. And there seems to be this line, this cultural line of demarcation for higher ed professors, especially when you're getting to post-grad level, where it's almost, you know, the, the gravitas of it almost squashes the perceived humanity of, of, of these professors. And I'm wondering how, how has your experience been and what level of grace do you feel you are being given or that you are losing? Cause it sounds like you you're processing things and going through, you know, grieving and needing grace, just like all of, all of us. But do you feel like, the the gravitas of your position kind of holds people back from accepting that of you as a person. I think I may have to un have you unpack that a little bit more. I do. Um, I don't see the I see the position that I hold as a is a certainly a, a great responsibility because you know I, I'm an employee of the state of California and my job is you know to teach teach folks who teach who then go on to work with young people and students and so I really consider that an honor on on my end. I, I wouldn't want people to think that I think that it's some, you know, like a first responder or like somebody who's a, a I think kindergarten teachers are far more important to society than, <laughs> sure. you, you know, but. I think um, what I was getting yeah. at is more how the way society views professors, but particularly post-grad professors where, you know, if you were to say, if you were at a dinner party and you and your friend are next to each other and your friend says, oh, I'm a fourth grade teacher. And everyone's like, wow, oh, that's so such hard work, blah, blah, blah. That's amazing. And you say, oh, I'm a professor in a doctoral program. They go, oh, okay, like fancy. It's not the same level of, um, we, we, don't, we don't culturally feel the same need for, protective, for protection. Uh, uh, that we would with, you know, we, we got to protect our teachers, but we don't feel that culturally with the higher ed professors. And I'm wondering oh. if that has bled yeah. into okay. you Maybe kind of I feeling can. like, 
well, you know, I'm going through this too. Sure. Well, I mean, when, okay. So let me think if this is what you mean, but yes. So by the way, also when I got glasses about two or three years after I started teaching <laughs> at, at a university, bam, boy, that like totally. And then you need, to, I never got uh, free elbow. meals or a better parking space, but I, you know, you need elbow just, patches on the jacket. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one thing is that people know what teachers do, right? Mm-hmm. More so, I think immediately they identify with it, and also people, you know, in the in in culture, there is just like the professor, you know, as a yeah. that was on Gilligan's Island, right? So that's like a stock yeah. Jungian archetype of the professor, right? I will also say though that because I'm white, because I'm, you know, a, a little taller, I'm, you know, I. I I kind of look like the professor on the, on Gilligan's Island almost for people who can't see me. I understand the, the intersectionalities of that. Bringing it back. Bringing it back um, of, of my identity. And I do understand the privileges that are just, I'm, that I'm awash in Mm -hmm. um, of, you know, of everything that that brings. And so I, I am even increasingly more aware of it as my um, department and my college are doing some, uh, what I'll call diversity equity work. Um, but we're doing like intergroup dialogues and really getting together and trying to understand our privileges. And it, not just because I'm a white man, I mean, all of us have privileges in various combinations of different contexts and things like that. So I, I realized that I have probably one of the most privileged positions in the world. And, um, I'm in probably the, you know, the richest country in the world and I am in a state university and the, and they're not laying us off. And, um, I have a tremendous amount of privilege so much so that it is to some degree, um, you know, it, 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 it imbues me with trying to become more humble about being aware of that. Um, and so, um, I, really try to be conscious of saying, oh, my DoorDash guy didn't show up on time and my pad thai was cold. You know, I don't, I don't want to be uh, appealing to, you know, some fake sense of that, you know, the world has done yeah. me wrong. So I, I really try to, to do what I can to be able to enlighten the inequities of what's happening, which is what we've been talking about here in terms of how a lot of my students are, are, are Latino primarily, but then I also have African-American students and especially in my master's program, all first gen. Um, one of the, one of the things I want to talk about in my homework is a book that relates to how important that experience is. And what I'm most proud of, or what I enjoy doing is really helping them to be able to make an impact in their communities. They want to go back to community colleges. They want to get kids from high school into college so that they can have better lives for their families. And if I can have any role in that, um, I, I feel like my job is done and I don't, I don't feel like I'm being treated unfairly at all. So I want to double back to something you had talked about earlier in terms of um, when we return to schools and what kids, what's next kids, what students want. And, you know, sometimes depending on the grade level, what kids want, you know, as, as everything starts to kind of go back to normal and not quite normal, but, you know, as we walk the path towards normalcy, a lot of businesses are, you know, they're already getting rid of some of these older and now at this point out, outdated methods, right? Like they're selling office space, 
because people could just work from home and they're going to start limiting business travel because, well, so many people are Zoom proficient, right? So as as a professor, what practices do you think you're just going to get rid of completely when we, re- when we actually yeah. return to normalcy? I think it's more what practices I'll add um, mm. because um, – first of all, really quick, I want to like, um, disabuse the, the conversation of the idea of normal. I, I don't ascribe to normal. Um, in that perspective, I have kind of a, kind of a queer theory perspective on it. And by that, for listeners who aren't like, what do you say? It's like, really what I mean more is that, you know, normal is, is a state that doesn't really exist because we're always in some level of of fluid thinking or fluid identity formation or, you know, and I think contexts are always fluid because they're about how we perceive it. And so my own self as an example, um, no way in heck you were going to get me to get to be on a computer. No way. And like when I saw your workshop and you had the the podcast stuff and I thought, no way in heck I'm going to buy a microphone. I am not going to buy a ring light. Or <laughs> now a, look at you. You know what? We were just talking before we started here today. I got a ring light up here. I got my Yeti microphone and that's not an endorsement. It's just a brand name. And then I got my green screen and a digital camera. I got all the fixings. And that's because I know, you know, I've got another year of this, practically yeah. speaking, Um you know, we're going to try to make some, some hybrid connection or, you know, some face-to-face connections as safe and appropriate and where people are willing to do that. Mm -hmm. But, um, all that is to say like normal doesn't really exist because now I've got all this equipment. I'm, I'm good to make explainer (laughs) videos. I'm going to do some makeup tutorials. (laughs) You've built, you built the panic room in the middle of the panic. Exactly. So I, so there's that, like, I'm not going to, I don't see myself. I I think it's merely, it's mainly additive, you know, um, the other, you know, I'm going to treat my students even more with a sense of, of, uh, humanity. Um, I'm going to, um, to, uh, a lot of those practices, like I said, videos and things like that. I'm really excited about, um, doing, uh, check-ins a lot more. I used to sort of try to do it, um, on a scale of one to 10 or a happy face, line face, sad face, just about where people were, but now it, you know, it's become essential in this zoom environment to get a tap of where people are at, but I will continue kind of checking for learning. Um, I was a teaching coach in, in the college, um, before all of this happened with traditional approaches and, you know, I always felt myself to be pretty proficient in, you know, quote unquote, good teaching. Um, and it always gotten really good evaluations better than, you know, the college and even department evaluations for teaching. Um, but I love the fact that I had a lot to learn over the summer, this last summer, where we were scrambling to try to learn pedagogical approaches to being engaging for students. And so I'm just going to add all of these to my, to my toolkit. I do, I do look forward to going back. Um, but I, don't think we need to go back as much. And you were talking about businesses kind of like getting rid of some or do sharing mm-hmm. space with other companies and things like that. I mean, here's the deal though, that I've thought about, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, there was all this building boom and like, still there's all these bond revenues that are like the, I'm, I'm here right near Long Beach city college. That place has grown three times mm-hmm. in the last five years in square footage because of bond issues. Many of these universities and colleges and schools are huge. I just saw all the local K-12s are getting new windows, you know, and air conditioning systems and things yeah. like that. Yes. Those buildings have to be filled. Residence halls have bonds at universities. They have to be filled. 
So again, we're, I, I, I don't think the world's going to be forever changed, but nor do I think we are going to um, go back to quote unquote normal. It's, oh, you know, it's, it's somewhere but, in but going back to the rubber band theory, like it'll snap back, but it'll be a little looser. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good, that there's a great analogy right there. The rubber band. So in terms of things being changed, hopefully the change that we do experience has to do with, uh, you know, inequities, right. Uh, within education. And I know in education, there's this longstanding bit about, you know, higher ed professors they they throw their hands in the air and there's like oh high schools aren't preparing these kids and then <laughs> high schools throw their hands in the air and they just are like well middle schools aren't getting our getting the middle schools are like what about these elementary and the elementary are like well, how are these parents getting their kids ready for i guess you know since you you're a solutions oriented person right so what can higher ed do to level the playing field for our most vulnerable students so uh, i want to talk about that but actually you said something that i often tell people and it kind of blows them away the reason why i got out of administration and got into being a faculty member is because i didn't want to be the yes man i did not want to be part of the solution i wanted to be part of the problem <laughs> <laughs> and by that of course i mean problematizing things right yes. like thinking critically about things so being like kind of being part of a part of the problem it's so rather than okay so then I'll, I'll <laughs> so, no, that's all right. no no i'm gonna rephrase the question and i'm gonna say <laughs> since you're not a solutions oriented person and you're a disruptor yeah there you go how can higher ed disruptive how can higher ed disrupt the status quo for the most vulnerable students, given that you, yeah. you, you get who you get and, you, and well, as, as and as I think the best thing, you don't get upset. <laughs> the best thing about this, and by no means am I saying that, you know, a pandemic was a great experiment to get change to happen, but talk about disruption. And then like yeah. we've been saying, turning on a dime has forced a lot of innovation to happen. And so, what are we thinking about in terms of, of equity and access? Well, right away, I can tell you our, our, my own two programs that I work with, my doc, the doctorate in education and our master's in student development and higher ed, which is a program that prepares people to be administrators in four-year schools and also counselors, like academic counselors. We saw record applications, as did many institutions, not a lot. In fact, community colleges kind of saw a bit of a downturn, but Many of the like graduate programs and stuff, and even undergraduate institutions, our, our own, saw record uh, undergraduate applications. Mm. Why? Because they think that the SAT, the ACT, and in our, ah. program, our graduate programs, the GRE are no longer offered. And what did that do? It increased the numbers of African-American and Latino students. Yeah. So that's one thing. And did we see the pool in any way suffer? No. Actually, I just got finished with admissions, reading both applications for the EDD, and then we also even did interviews and selection. Top-notch candidates. In fact, so many, we could have run a couple of different cohorts, but we're just not, you know, we're not able to do that because we just don't have that many faculty in rooms, right? So no, there was no loss of quality there in the applicants by not having those assessments. And we all know those assessments don't really work. We know that GPAs are stronger indicators and then strong statements and experiences yeah. for graduate education, at least. So that's one thing that we saw really take hold. It was already in the mix. They were thinking about dropping these and they were investigating them. But when the pandemic hit, bam, it just changed things. So, you know, that's an example of being part of the problem, or in other words, really looking at problems and trying to say, okay, what can we do different? The pandemic, I guess that's what will be different, is we will no longer have the pandemic to say, 
well, it's the pandemic. Let's do it differently. Um, that's not going to happen anymore because as we start to get back kind of, I won't say normal, but like into the swing of things, like where we feel a little Business more comfortable as usual. to take masks off, to, yeah. you know, crowd in bars and to do things like that. Uh, those are the things that I hope that people will still be able to fall back on is like, okay, we, we can eliminate these exams that don't really have a lot of, of, of final, um, outcome in terms of how successful people do. Also, we saw in community colleges that uh, AB 705, the legislation that stopped the um, remedial courses mm. so that stu- students could place themselves directly into a college right, level math right. course rather than having to take like three years of, of yeah. prep math before you even get into a college level math class. Um, and they have found so far that that doesn't seem to be a significant hindrance to students being able to be able to transfer to another school earlier. So those are examples of how, how that can happen. I am, I'm fully on board. I'm going to reveal, I'm going to expose myself here for some. Uh Oh, Um, Uh -oh. you heard it here. Yes. Because I think, (laughs) because I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, these things don't mean what, we've all been programmed to think that they mean. I think advanced placement courses are a great way to expose kids to college level courses so that they don't have a culture shock when they get there. Uh, and I think it's a great way to potentially save money. That way you, you know, you can earn college credit, but I will tell you as someone who is, I am in a doctoral program. I was, uh, an AP coordinator for the largest school in my district. I mean, we're talking 4,000 tests, uh, 2,000 students taking APs. That's like, it it was like its own little administrative job. But me personally, not only did I not know uh, I was graduating high school until the last day of high school, I did not take a single AP course growing up. Of course, I also didn't know how to do anything. I was the first kid in my family, in my immediate family to go to college. Uh, so I didn't know how to navigate any of this. So I, I didn't know I was graduating until the last day of high school. I didn't take any AP courses. I never took the SAT or the ACT. I went to a community college and then just transferred to a four-year university. I, I like the, the first time I had to take a test for, for anything was the GRE to get into the doctoral program. Uh, and I was 38 when I took that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think one looks at me and thinks, oh, there's somebody who, you know, skipped these essential steps and could never recover. It just doesn't seem like it's necessary. I, I think, you know, the, the thing that kills me when we talk about, and this is a different topic, but when we talk about grading and you know, how kids are going to, oh, oh, you just want to let every kid graduate high school? Yeah, why not? Like, what do you think will happen? Oh, they have this uh, high school degree, this this high school diploma, and they're not going to Harvard or Yale. Uh, Maybe they'll go to a community college, or if not, like, then they'll go into a trade or do other type of work. But like, who cares? Like, we, you know, the statistics of kids who don't have a high school degree versus the ones that do it, it's not good for society to have more kids without a high school degree. So this idea of like, Oh, we're just going to make it so much easier for kids to squeak by. Yeah. I mean, if they're squeaking by, they're not taking anyone's lunch 
uh, on the higher end of things. It, like everyone got to chill out about it. Yeah, um, no, I, that's I, a different I, topic altogether. I, yeah, I well, I get what uh, for me the the important thing too that that I think needs to be put out there is the idea that um, I think education is beyond compulsory. So when you get into post-secondary, then, you know, we hear talk about like at least two years being um, something they made available to everyone if, if they want it. Uh, I think that that we need to continue or, and in California, we do this better than I think many of the States, it, which is to see education, higher education, public higher education as, as a public good and not as a private benefit, not something that, you know, is only benefiting you as an individual. And what, what, it, what ends up happening is we start defunding as a state, we start pulling more money out. Well, California still spends a lot of money on higher education, which is great. Our state got, it, we did okay after COVID only because we have so many million billionaires in the state that we were able to um, return the cuts the state university had. But what people don't understand and why I'm so proud to work at the state university, but part of the community colleges, you know, that, that help us transfer in there as well uh, is we are the engine of social mobility and we're the ones that are producing, even in community colleges, producing people who work, who get a job, who end up, you know, becoming, if they especially go to a four-year school or whatever, engineers, accountants, nurses, teachers, right? And, and those are productive citizens. And we know that people who have a bachelor's degree live longer. They vote. They, you know, that all of the data is there that a college degree is correlated with healthier lifestyles, with um, participation in democracy, with a variety of different, very, very positive indicators. And people who have less than a high school diploma don't have mm -hmm. the best life outcomes. And that's okay. another thing that's so important about what we need to do with regard to access and equity. But when we're taking money away from the state universities, you know, that in and of itself is something I think that is is racist <laughs> because of who the, those institutions primarily serve the, you know, the community colleges in particular. Um, so, yeah, I agree. And I love the idea that, you know, you're, I love your attitude about it for me in graduate education. I can tell my students on the first day, look, you made it this far. If it were up to me and you all get A's right now on the first day of class, mm -hmm. because you know what, it's, it's harder to learn. <laughs> you know, I want you to actually learn something. Yeah. And so if I can take away the stress of how many points did I get for this? Is this going to be on the test? You know, if I can take that away from you on day one and say, now your real challenge, the hard part now is you got to learn something in this mm -hmm. class. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, the application is, is certainly the thing that seems to get lost in uh, the, the race for grades. So I'm going to get you out of here. Well, I'm going to ask you one last question before I get you out of here. And it's just something that's been on my mind a lot because as you know, schools are opening back up and it feels like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be kind of a fun simulation style question. So imagine it's the first day, uh, fall semester or whatever semester it is. And you have your very first class filled with maskless students. And for the first time, this global nightmare really feels over to you. What's the first thing you're going to say to your class? Welcome back, everyone. Like, uh, it's wonderful to see your faces <laughs> and, hey. to see, and to see you smile. You know what? It's, it's simple, and I couldn't think of a better response either. So that's great. I love it. I do look forward to seeing people smile because the only thing you can do now is just see the little wrinkles in their eyes. And if, you know, you've, 
you know, not everybody does that. Especially, especially as you're hitting 40, like I am, the wrinkles. Yeah. Are well, really say, real. if you, sometimes you can get injections too that prevent that from happening. And then you never know what people are and thinking. I, I will say the best thing about distance learning is you are able to get yourself enough light that you can just wash out. Right. And I've got kind of a key light, like a rose key light that comes at the side. And then I've got another one. There so you go. a lot of very elaborate lighting. All right. So we've come to my favorite part of oh. the interview where I get to really sort of crack open the mind <laughs> of the person I'm interviewing and not just siphon their knowledge of education, but I really get to kind of say, hey, what more can I add to my life to make it better uh, in general? So this is uh, the extra credit segment where you can offer an extra credit assignment to myself and any of the podcast listeners. It can be anything. It could be a movie to check out, a book to read, a country to visit when that is possible, a type of food to try. I mean, it literally can be whatever you want. So uh, I'm going to leave the floor to you. What is an extra credit assignment you would like okay. to give a podcast? So I thought of three things. One, so one generally is try something new because I'm, I wasn't always like into doing that. So I'll admit, you know, I'm 53 and I finally started doing yoga. Hey. So what I would say is, cause now I take, I take one class every week and then I try to do some on my own, like at least another day a week. And then I, you know, and, and by the way, the class is safe. It's, you know, via zoom. Sure. Um, but which I, you know, that's another thing I can hardly wait to get back to where I can actually go to, to have, you know, have the instructor there. Cause I realize how important that is, but um, oh my goodness. The, um, let's see the child's pose. And it was my, you know, I could do that all day, but then there's also the, um, the, just, just the idea of doing something new, challenging yourself into something that's healthy and good for you. And I, I just, I love it. Now I know I'm speaking to a lot of people that have probably been doing it for years, but what I would challenge you to say then is, okay, if you don't do yoga, then try something else, try, fast walking or try a uh, meditation in some other way or whatever, but like challenge yourself to do something in the terms of wellness and balance. Mm. Cause I just was always someone like, I got it. I can handle it. Um, you know, I'll just, this isn't going to bother me. And it's like after a while, yeah, it does. So sure. yoga was one thing, but whatever it takes for you to do something new, that's good for you. And then I got two books because, so my motto is a B R always be reading. Right. So I think people should, always I've heard that. I've heard that about you. <laughs> so I just hashtag ABR, man, always be reading. I got two books. One of them is about the notion of upward mobility um, and the role of higher education in that, but it talks about it from a moral perspective and it's called moving up without losing your way. And it's the ethical costs of upward mobility. And the author, her last name is Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. The, and the thesis behind the book is that folks who are first generation, folks of color, immigrant students, get into higher education. And when their families have never gone to education at all and have no understanding of it, um, they are really having to make very tough moral decisions, right? They are doing what they're doing because they want to get those careers that I was talking about, that social mobility, being, you know, getting a job to help themselves and, of course, help their families, but at what cost? And that cost, it's about the good in life that we need to learn that they're having to trade on. So a student from Advantage may say, oh my gosh, I can't decide if I want to do Google or Oracle for my um, summer internship between you know, going to Europe. 
Whereas the student who has to really, you know, work their way through college is really thinking, I'm going to have to give up this family event, this wedding, this child's birthday or whatever. And there are a lot of those in, you know, in families that are collectivists. And there's real moral conundrum that these students face. And we need to understand that as educators, that it's not, you know, oh, why don't you just do it? Drop it. No need to go do that family event. That's the eighth wedding you've been to, right? And it's like, well, that's very important. Right. Yeah, there's a big thing recently on Twitter about uh, the argument over these these free internships and free internships are are the 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 identifier of privilege. <laughs> like I can Absolutely. afford yeah to for free. And the only other the other book this is the one that I like because of the crisis that we find ourselves in. It's a book called The Ordinary Virtues, and it's by a gentleman by the name of Michael Ignatieff, and it's I G N A T I E F F. He um, worked with a Carnegie Foundation for, it, it's an international foundation for ethics. And he went to several of the world's poorest places, but he also included Los Angeles, <laughs> South Central Los Angeles. But he yeah. went to favelas in, um, in Brazil. He went to many of the poorest places in the world. And he was in search of just the simple, basic, moral kind of values that people have that are just very pragmatic values just to survive. Just what does it take? to get through the day, not more elaborate sort of Maslow's hierarchy values at the top, but really more about what are those common impulses that we all have. And I won't really reveal a lot of them, but there, there were only five, but it just had a lot to do with what does it take to survive? What does it take to live through, through the world and to respect each other as human beings? And I just found it really applicable. It was written in 2017, but it's really applicable to the way that people are, are living their lives now. Wow. So yeah, that sounds really interesting. And what was the name of the first book again? The first book, Moving Up Without Losing Your Way. And it's Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. Nice. So try something new. By the way, my favorite yoga pose. And I was going to try to remember the name of it, but I, yeah, I'm just going to like butcher it. And it was like, uh, it's the one where you lay flat on your back. The corpse <laughs> pose. Yeah, but I don't know the name of it in Sanskrit. It's like Vatarasan or something like Yes, just, yes, yes. Just, just lay there. That, that's my jam. That's a great one. Oh, that's a great it's, one. It's kind of shocking how de-stressing it is to just lay on your back, yes, not move, and you're like, oh, I, I, I find that um, when I whenever I get a haircut, I I I like start to like fall asleep, and I re- and I realized it's because it's the first time that I'm just sitting down and not either doing something or thinking about the things I have to do. And when just that act of not doing that, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm tired. (laughs) For me, it's the shower. I have some of my greatest thoughts in the shower where I'm just thinking about nothing. Well, Dr. O'Brien, I really appreciate uh, you coming on. Do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media, anything like that? You know, I'm just a plain, you know, regular kind of guy. So no, I, you know, I, I'm just happy to be here. I want to thank you very much. Just, just a garden variety professor, but I do want to thank you very much for, for inviting me. It's great. Oh, I listen, I look forward to, uh, if I ever have your class, uh, getting that automatic a I'm uh, that you talked about, I'm, I'm very excited for that. You get an A and you get an A. Everybody gets an A. O'Brien's easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is our show. I want to thank our very special guest, Dr. Jonathan O'Brien, for joining us, and 
Thank you, my pod classmates, for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, don't be a stranger. Reach out. Let me know. I can be found on all social media platforms. I'm talking Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, Clubhouse. If it's a social media platform, I'm on it under the username at TeachMeMrWest. I can also be reached via email at podclasspod. That's podclasspod at gmail.com. So listen, this is still a new and exciting show for a lot of us, and we need all the help we can get letting the world know why they should subscribe. If you wouldn't mind, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and go ahead and give this show a five-star rating and maybe even a little review if it's not too much trouble. If reviews aren't your thing, why not tell everyone you know to subscribe to the show? Look, I get it. You're a busy person. You've got a long to-do list with tasks of varying importance. You don't have time to leave a five-star rating, let alone a review. So why don't we do this? Next time you listen to my show and you get to this part, I mean, you know what I'm already going to say. So instead of listening to me drone on, take the extra 30 seconds of time I've just gifted you and go ahead and do a good deed. You'll feel good. I'll feel good. It's a real win-win. Sound good? Okay. If not, I'll just remind you next time. And until next time, podcast dismissed. <laughs>